Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 15 of Chris's on Infinite Earths here at the Chris and Reggie channel. You can find this program every other Wednesday at chrisandreggie.com, chrisandreggie.podbean.com, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all those places. I mean, if you if you found us, you, you know where to find us. So uh, enough about that. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing a book that uh, was one of the first times that I tried doing a little bit of uh, blogging and podcasting synergy. Uh trying to uh, kind of, uh, kind of uh, piggyback on an episode or a segment that uh, Reggie and I had done. This uh, goes way back to the very start when we were just a uh, very brief segment over on the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast. Uh, this is pre-Cosmic Treadmill. This is uh, even pre-numbering our episodes. This goes all the way back to our second outing as Weird Comics History. And we discussed a very strange time in uh, 1984, where DC Comics had uh, w- was almost uh, was considering licensing some of their uh, larger characters, or perhaps their whole stable of characters, over to Marvel Comics. Uh, we got this information um, from Jim Shooter's blog. Uh, Jim Shooter uh, used to be a uh, fairly prolific blogger around uh, the turn of this decade. Um, it has since dried up. I. I I like to think that uh, maybe he realized that there is probably a demand for a tell-all book, and he decided to stop giving away everything for free. So he kind of clammed up a bit, but uh, back in uh, August of 2011, he put out a post on his site, that's jimshooter.com, and I'll link to it in the show notes, where uh, he mentions that DC was uh, considering licensing their uh, characters and how his... uh, publisher, his, uh, his ex- the execs at Marvel weren't really too receptive initially because they figured if, uh, if DC couldn't turn a profit with these characters, what good could Marvel do, you know? Uh, Jim Galton said, uh, Marvel's president, Jim Galton, was like, hey, you know, if they can't do it, they must not be good enough to publish, so why should we bother? Anyway, Jim Shooter had uh, very, very different ideas on that and uh, decided to put together a uh, business plan and uh, wanted to launch seven DC titles under the Marvel Comics banner. And uh, those books were Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Teen Titans, the Justice League, and the Legion of Superheroes. And uh, he had uh, projected sales, he projected everything out, and uh, even went so far as to uh, mention it to a few of his peers, one of whom would run off and actually put together a pretty in-depth projection of how he would remake Superman for this new this new endeavor and that man was John Byrne and of course you know we know what John Byrne would eventually do with Superman and that's kind of what we're getting to here but uh when Reggie and I discussed this initially back in the summer of 2016 um I decided to cover Man of Steel number one and this is of course the old Man of Steel number one it's a it's kind of crazy that we even have to say that, that there's actually been two six-issue series called Man of Steel. But uh, this is the world we now live in. This is the John Byrne one. And I uh, put this together on the blog way back on April 25th, 2016. So very early in my blogging uh, career, I guess. And uh, I did so because I wanted to kind of parlay with our Weird Comics History segment. And... Uh, And I wanted to actually compare uh, the John Byrne original Marvel Superman 
uh, the uh, layout, the plot, the, the little skeleton of an outline he had uh, with what actually turned out happening a couple years later over at DC Comics. So we're going to discuss, we're going to go through the entire issue. Uh, this is Man of Steel number one uh, from 1986, and uh, it, it's broken into chapters. And at the end of each chapter, we're going to look at uh, we're going to look at what the Marvel plan was. So we're going to compare and contrast, uh, maybe see which ones, uh, which ideas might have been better, which ideas might not have worked, and uh, we're going to just play with it. We're going to see how it goes, and uh, we're going to wrap up this episode with uh, another hot take. And this one goes back to Usenet, back a 1985 Usenet post. A uh, rather lengthy post by a fellow, uh, where it's it's very much the definite the definitive hot take. He's uh, opining on what the burn uh, Superman might be way before it even comes out. So sight unseen, he's already drawing his conclusions, and uh, that's the kind of thing we love here. So we're gonna definitely enjoy going through that. Uh, but uh, right after the horns, we will go right into Man of Steel number one. Alrighty, Man of Steel, number one, from 1986. Story is titled, From Out of the Green Dawn, dot, dot, dot. Written and penciled by John Byrne. Inks by Dick Giordano. Colors, Tom Ziuko. Letters, John Costanza, and edited by Andy Helfer. Had a cover price of 75 cents. Actually had two covers. We had the uh, similarly dressed, uh, similarly trade dressed uh, cover as the rest of the series. And then we also had one with... Sort of like a metallic, metallic E inking on the uh, on the logo, and uh, a close up of Superman opening his shirt, or Clark Kent opening his shirt, I should say. Now, this story, we have a prologue from Out of the Green Dawn, and uh, it opens under the red sun of Krypton as a flying round transportation device uh, approaches an asymmetrical as- structure. Upon exiting his transport, this is Jor-El, and he's greeted by Kelex, a robotic servant. He excuses himself to his lab. Uh, inside the lab is a dark sphere. As Jor-El draws closer, we can make out a humanoid humanoid form inside, and, of course, that that form is his son. Lara, who's uh, Jor-El's wife, she enters, and she's shocked to discover that he removed their child's birthing matrix from what she calls the gestation, just, easy for me to say, gestation chamber. It has been Kryptonian law for centuries that a parent may remove their child's matrix, however... That also hasn't been exercised in centuries. Jor-El shares with his wife that Krypton is in a grave and urgent state. The planet has a radioactive pressure building up inside it and will likely explode even as soon as within the hour. Lara asks what this means to their son, and Jor-El speaks of a plan. Now, this plan is to send their son to safety, to a planet called Earth, a nation called America, a subsection of that nation called Kansas. Earth has, as you know, we all know, a yellow sun. We all live here. We, we can see the sun. Uh, a sun under which their soon-to-be sun will grow into a supreme being, not entirely unlike a god. Of special note, this Krypton is a rather sterile one. This is a different, you know, this is kind of elements of the movie, which I've never seen, so I'm just going to take people's word for it. Uh, <laughs> but it's different than the pre-crisis, the, uh, I guess, pre-Man of Steel one. Uh, now, Jor-El says himself that society is cold and heartless and stripped of all human feeling. Lara is shocked when she observes a shirtless earthling. He, she calls him a savage, and she's almost disgusted 
that he dares bear his naked, hairy flesh. Now, no sooner do they finish their discussion of the planet's that the planet's mantle starts to give way. Radioactive eruptions begin blasting from the underground. With nary a moment to spare, Jor-El launches the Matrix skyward. It leaves Krypton just as the planet explodes. So, same as it ever was, at least in that in that regard. Now, that's the end of the first chapter here, or the prologue anyway. Now, the original John Byrne Marvel plot, now this part is called Krypton. In the pitch, Krypton is facing that same threat. However, rather than there being a birthing matrix, in this version, Lara is with child, so she's pregnant. Uh, whether or not this means the Marvel Krypton is less sterile, we don't know. I mean, I'm sure Byrne had seen the movie and was probably going to introduce elements from the movie. Uh, now, this chapter, uh, the Marvel chapter, ends similarly, of course. The ship escapes an exploding Krypton. However, in the Marvel version, as mentioned, Lara is the passenger and not a birthing matrix. Now, we jump to chapter one. It's called The Secret. Clark Kent is the star football player for, the, for Smallville High School. He is the hero of the gridiron, and his coach couldn't be any happier. His teammates, however, are a different story. Pa Kent is looking on, and he's got a pretty disappointed scowl on his face. Following the big win, Clark is hoisted on the shoulders of his classmates and is treated like the, you know, the big man on campus. Pa Kent approaches and sternly tells him, time to go home. During the ride home, Pa tells Clark that he's disappointed in him. Clark is taking too much of the glory on the field, and Pa thinks he knows why he's able to be so dominant. And so he drives his son to a field. There's a large wooden hatch covering an area of the ground, which Pa lifts and reveals that Kryptonian birthing matrix. At this point, Pa comes clean. He tells Clark that this is where he and his mother had found him. Clark is shocked to come to the realization that he's adopted. It's, it's, it's funny here. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's like more shocked that he's adopted than he's an alien. You know, that's, I think that's a really cool, uh, cool, th- cool thing that, you know, humanizes Clark quite a great deal. Now, Pa tells the story of the night that they observed a streak of light crash into the field some 18 years ago. Jonathan and Martha tentatively approached the odd black sphere only to have it dissipate, revealing a little baby boy. He continues, The couple decides to pass the child off as their own natural son. We observe a few vignettes of Clark's youth, including his earliest encounter with Lana Lang. Uh, One story that John shares concerns the day Clark was trampled by a neighbor's bull and somehow came out of it without a scratch. So uh, this isn't, you know, baby Clark flying around the orphanage. This is uh, Clark whose abilities appeared later, or at least they were recognized later. Uh, Now he watches other feats uh, Clark exhibited during his youth and adolescence. Uh, He lifted tractors. He's, you know, he was being knocked off a cliff by a wild dog and found out he could fly. So, I mean, the whole alien thing was, uh, you know, maybe a little obvious, but... Maybe you just don't want to see the things that are right in front of your face. We jump back to the present, and Curious Clark approaches the Matrix himself. As he gets closer, he becomes dizzy, and Pa even has to help him get back in the truck. They return to the Kent farm, and John shares with Martha that Clark now knows the secret. Over in the Marvel version, this second chapter was called Smallville. In it, the Kents still witness the Matrix landing, Jonathan helps the injured and very pregnant Lyra out of the wreckage. 
Soon after this, she gives birth to a boy that she names Kal-El. And as she, you know, right after this, she dies from kryptonite poisoning. There's still an exhibition of Clark's superhuman powers, including the same, you know, the cliff scene, all that stuff where he just discovers he could fly. Uh, during this chapter in the Marvel version, however, Jonathan Kent dies while attempting to physically pull a tractor from a mud hole. Next chapter, chapter two, the exposure. Now, in it, Jonathan Kent enters the kitchen where he finds his wife Martha tending to her scrapbook. Now, she's been keeping all of the newspaper clippings concerning a recent string of miracles that have occurred. Jonathan happily advises her that he has a new addition for her collection, and it reads, Mysterious Superman Saves Space Plane. It's a cover of the Smallville Post. The pair hear an odd creaking coming from upstairs, just where Clark's room would be. Armed with a club because they're not expecting Clark home anytime soon, Jonathan heads up to see who goes there. He opens the door to find Clark sitting in a darkened room. He says, they wanted a piece of me. They all wanted a piece of me. Clark shares the story of his recent space plane endeavor in Metropolis. A small airplane flew too close to the craft and caused it to begin plummeting toward the Earth. Clark flew into action and steadied the space plane, which also had as one of its passengers a uh, plucky brunette reporter, uh, and she, he's able to take him to a safe landing. Of note, I believe they had to call the craft a space plane because uh, this is like right around the time of the Challenger uh, tragedy, so I don't think they wanted to have a, you know, a spaceship or a rocket uh, have any kind of trauma. After the space plane comes to a stop, Lois Lane exits and she's and follows after Clark, wanting to know who he is and just what he's doing here. It's not long before Clark finds himself surrounded by a mob, and they're all begging and they're making demands on him. He comes home because he really had no idea how to deal with all of this, uh, being in such demand. Uh, pa smiles and uh, he thinks he might just have an idea. Jump over to the Marvel pitch. This chapter is called Metropolis. This chapter features Clark being hired at the Daily Planet, and we have the introduction of his classic cast. Uh, in, it, in this chapter, the President of the United States gets kidnapped by terrorists. Unfortunately, he isn't kidnapped by ninjas, uh, so Clark does not have to prove what a bad dude he is. Uh, but he is a bad enough dude to find him anyway. Uh, he's uh, not able to really take matters into his own hands, though. He, uh, he doesn't go there Personally, he calls the authorities and informs them of the president's location once he discovers it. Now, this raid is successful, but not without casualties. The president himself is even gravely injured. Clark realizes that he could have taken care of the entire affair on his own and saved the president without a hitch. And so he talks it over with his remaining parental figure, Ma, who apparently saw the writing on the wall all along and hands him his first costume. Our last chapter is the epilogue, called The Superhero. Now, this is a pretty cute scene. I think we're all familiar with it. This is uh, the Kents creating Clark Superman costume, including the S-Shield. Uh, here, Clark learns that he's got to carry himself and even style his hair differently when he's in either persona so people don't catch on. You know, we always have that old joke that a pair of glasses is uh, not a very good disguise, but uh, he is drawn... Differently, he's drawn with a different gravitas when he's Superman, so it's uh, a lot of body language that's different. So, uh, and and I mean, we're reading comics, so <laughs> we'll, we can excuse things like that. 
Now uh, Clark gets dressed, kisses Ma on his uh, Ma on her forehead, and takes off, stating, "When there's someone in need of special kind of help, it'll be a job for Superman." And uh, the issue actually closes with a text piece by John Byrne, which we won't go through because it's a uh, Rather lengthy, and uh, I've, I've got images up uh, on the site, and I'll, I'll include them over on the uh, the Chris and Reggie site, too, so you can take a look at that. Uh, now, Marvel's scene, this is the closing chapter, it's called The Man of Tomorrow. And in it, a costumed clerk breaks up an armored car robbery, rescues a stuck tramway car, and pulls a car full of people from a collapsing tunnel. Lois Lane approaches and feels an instant attraction. She tries to get an interview, but he says he'd already promised Clark Kent the exclusive. The Marvel issue closes with the introduction of Lex Luthor, who is shown reading the Daily Planet and has just found out that there is a Superman among them. You know, it's hard uh, not to read this and and kind of get chills if you're uh, you're a Superman fan. And uh, it's just... uh, a really great way to uh, reimagine him uh, for a, a new generation, uh, for a new status quo. Uh, I, you know, I suppose I'm letting my my post crisis show, but uh, this is a uh, this is my Superman. You know, this is the Superman that I followed. This is the Superman I mourned. I mean, this is uh, this is the guy, and uh, this Clark Kent is a uh, very relatable, uh, more relatable than the Silver Age, of course. Uh, yeah, you know, I mentioned earlier the little things that John Byrne adds, you know, like uh, not realizing he's adopted or uh, not even being able to understand that he's that he's different, that he's special, even though he can fly. <laughs> you know, I think that speaks a lot to uh, his how he's raised. You know, we talk about uh, nature and nurture and uh, the Kents ro- raised him. And uh, I-, I think that uh, they're a necessary presence in, in Superman comics. I I don't like that they're not around now. Um, I didn't like it uh, in the post Infinite Crisis, uh, where you know Jonathan was was uh, killed off. I, I, I didn't like that. Then again, I'm also a guy who pushes for legacy characters to actually happen. So I, I, there's a little give and take. You know, things do need to uh, evolve and change. Uh, just certain things I, I kind of like staying in the amber. You know. Now. Uh, because you know to me, I you got like an orphaned Superman. You know, there's no tether. He's just a grown up in the world, and it's I don't know. It's just I, I like it better where it's uh, where he's got that where he's got that touchstone in uh, Mod Pa. Now this was a uh, pretty dense and packed issue. There were no ads, but nothing feels crammed. You know, this uh, doesn't feel overly compressed. Um, now, if we compare this, what we got, to the Marvel pitch, I, you know, I like this better because it does give a lot of these elements time to time to breathe. Where the Marvel one kind of felt like, uh, like it was going to be a one-and-done, get everything in there, cram as much of this origin story in there, and uh, go to, go, you know, hit the, you know, hit the ground running after that. Now, you know, we... Just read Man of Steel number one. We haven't even seen the Daily Planet. We barely saw Lois. Uh, Lana only appeared in a few flashback panels. And uh, Lex, he's nowhere to be found. I mean, they're, they're all going to show up in Man of Steel, of course. Uh, but they're not necessary for this little leg of the journey. And I, I like that. I like that they didn't rush it. 
I like that they did plan this out to be, you know, a six-issue epic story where everything will come together at the end. And there's no real need to rush. Uh, And, you know, while I said this wasn't compressed, it also wasn't decompressed because we're getting a lot of information here and we're going to continue to get a lot of information throughout the journey. Now, I do like that most of this issue took place in Smallville. Uh, it made me feel like we were giving, given like a real opportunity to meet Clark. You know, he's, uh, it's he's not just Superman. You know, we get to see him as as a young man who's uh, coming to grips and trying to process all these new things in his life. You know, the uh, going from the small town to the city where he's discovered as this savior, and everybody wants a piece of him. It's uh, such culture shock, and I, I think. Uh, when we discuss Superman and culture shock, I think there's a, uh, I think there's an urge to look at the man versus the alien. You know, I think that that's kind of the schism that a lot of folks like to explore and investigate and analyze. Where I like it here, where it's you know a small town guy and a guy in the city. We're we're not even taking the alien into consideration at this point, because you know we have that. There's that triangle, you know, we have Clark, we have Superman, we have an alien. It's, I really like the way they did this, um, because it, it feels more human, you know, and it, though he's not, it does feel human. It feels uh, relatable in a way. Um, you know, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but, you know, Man of Steel is sometimes called the marvelization of Superman, and in a way that's not a entirely incorrect uh this is uh this is <laughs> this is my superman you know this is the one that i wanted to follow when i you know finally came around to d- to discovering him uh this is just a uh fun phenomenal little issue and uh, a great series and uh let's just look at the epilogue here for a second here we have this awesome scene superman taking off he's he is in costume he is chest puffed out he's ready to make a difference in the world and then i compare it to superman's secret origin number one and if you've read that you know exactly what i'm going to be talking about for a few moments here it's uh martha makes the costume for uh, for clark who comes trudging down the stairs sheepish and embarrassed swearing that he will never ever wear this costume. That just doesn't feel like Superman to me. (laughs) You know? This here, where we have him, you know, this is a job for Superman, and just going out to make a difference, to change the world. That's Superman. Not some, you know, embarrassed kid who doesn't want to... And I I understand why Jeff Johns did that, to, to, uh, you know, make it honestly more realistic. But, you know, I think Superman's above that. I think that he should be he should be the one that we look to and he should be proud of who and what he is and where he came from. And uh that's just uh that's just me. I mean, uh, if you, if you folks feel differently, let me let me know for sure. But uh this started an awesome series an awesome era and uh we're going to discuss more of that after the horns with our hot take. <laughs> This time out, we're digging back into Usenet for our hot take. This is going to be a post dated October 15th, 1985. So, yes, there were people on the uh, prehistoric internet <laughs> as early back as 1985. 
Now, this uh, this post is titled John Byrne slash DC Rumor. And it starts with, It is no longer a rumor. According to Comic Buyer's Guide number 623, Byrne will be taking over as writer and artist as of July 1986 with Superman Volume 2 Number 1. The following is quoted directly from the CBG article. And this newsletter will be making a little pop-in uh, pop-in comments that we'll address as we go through them. Now, the CBG piece starts with, The familiar cast of characters, including Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and Perry White, will be reintroduced with alterations. Lana Lang, Byrne said, comes back in a substantially altered form, and Superman's forced appearance to Kent's will still be alive. Our Usenetter comments, I'm surprised that he's keeping Lana. I always associate her with Superboy or those silly 60s stories. Sure, her personality has gone through four or five revisions since then, and she's dating Clark now. But that's just because of Superman number three, the Superman three, the movie. Uh, hard to believe they thought they had to make changes to be compatible with that turkey, the uh, Usenetter says. I assume that Byrne intends to make Lana a totally different character, and Lois will be restored to her proper position. Back to the CBG. The relationship between Superman and the Batman, which Byrne begins with his fourth issue, will not be the chummy friendship of, of past decades. Quote, vastly different backgrounds, vastly different motivations. And the Justice League, quote, will have a role, but they are basically formed to take care of the things that Superman is too busy to take care of. Drawing his inspiration from the original characterization of Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, the classic Fleischer cartoons of the 40s, and the first of the Christopher Reeve motion pictures, Burns stated his preference is for a, quote, Superman who has to sweat. Burns says, My whole approach is that the man should be more important than the super, and he has to be. If he's just a supremely powerful guy who never screws up, then who cares? I mean, we've got the Bible if I want to read that kind of stuff. Superman has to be comprehensible in mortal terms. He continues, Byrne rejects the notion of recent years concerning Superman's feelings of alienation. This guy was raised as a human being. He doesn't know from alienation. Planning to save the character's discovery of his native heritage for the 50th issue in 1988, the artist maintains that as far as Superman is concerned, he's a human being who just happens to be better than everybody else. Alrighty, now let's jump right in at the beginning here. <laughs> now, the reintroduction of Superman's cast of characters, uh, Lana Lang, as mentioned by our Usenetter, was romantically linked with Clark Kent just prior to Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, during which time the two worked as co-anchors for WGBS-TV News. Now, the pre-crisis issues where L- Lana and Clark are together... They just feel wrong to me. <laughs> I'm, I am a post-crisis guy, as mentioned. And uh, I, while I have built a uh, sizable uh, Bronze Age and pre-crisis Superman collection, and uh, I've read much of it, it still just doesn't feel right, you know? Uh, or, or maybe I'm, I'm just too much of a Vartox guy to see uh, Lana with anybody but Vartox. I don't know. But, uh, no, honestly, uh, Lois and Clark, I always feel like they should be together, uh... One of the uh, two-parters I'd written about on the blog, which we'll probably eventually cover here because it's a very interesting story, was a uh, Lois Lane miniseries uh, subtitled When It Rains, God is Crying. It was a two-parter written by Mindy Newell with art by Gray Morrow. It's a great little story. Um, It's uh, published post-crisis, but 
takes place pre-crisis because Lana and Clark are together and Lois is just a uh, a like a tragic lonely character. Uh, <laughs> it's it's very very strange and it's uh, very uncomfortable seeing her not part of uh, any kind of Clark relationship, uh, be it with himself or Superman. It's just very 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 lonely. Um, and for a post-crisis guy, uh, very very strange. Um, now. Now, the film Superman 3, as mentioned, would introduce Ms. Lang to a wider audience and uh, may well have been the catalyst for their on-panel romance. Uh, Following the crisis, Lana appeared to be restored as Clark's childhood friend. You know, they did love each other, but Clark's love was certainly (laughs) more platonic than romantic. It's the old uh, kissing on the forehead instead of the lips sort of a situation, you know. Uh, Lana, of course, would eventually marry another old friend's a friend of Clark's and a future vice president and president of the United States. That's uh, Pete Ross, which uh, yeah, I guess means Lana became more than just Clark's first lady. Now, the Kents being left alive, as mentioned during our synopsis uh, and review portion, is something that I always enjoyed. Uh, they did tether Clark. They kept him humble. Uh, you know, he could save the world a million times over, yet at the end of the day, he was still... John and Martha's boy, you know, and that that was great. Uh, This is the way an entire generation of fans saw Clark's family dynamic. Uh, I mean, Lois and Clark, the TV show, had the Kents. Smallville has the Kents, uh, though I only watched Lois and Clark. I've never seen Smallville. But uh, I do know the parents were there because he was a younger fellow at that time. He mentions the Superman-Batman dynamic, and uh, that took a turn for the contentious following Crisis and Man of Steel. As quoted by Byrne, the two come from very different backgrounds and have very different motivations. Uh, The pre-crisis world's finest, uh, you know, they appeared to be close friends, best friends even. Post-crisis, Batman and Superman, they may work together from time to time, but you you really didn't get the impression that they were all that chummy off the clock. You know, they weren't going out for, uh, for coffee after saving the world or saving the city. Now, the Justice League was a completely different animal post-crisis, to the point where Superman uh, and Batman and Wonder Woman were removed from taking part in its founding. Wonder Woman was replaced by Black Canary as JLA founder, and the only member of the Trinity that would be part of this post-crisis, post-Legends Justice League would be Batman. Superman would eventually join just prior to uh, the Death of Superman storyline, about a year year or so before that, or during the year leading up to that. Now, focusing on the man more than the super... uh, now, we mentioned Marvelization uh, during the review portion here, and uh, I think this is kind of what people refer to as the Marvelization, but this is what brought me here. And as a uh, Marvel kid, I guess it stands to reason that this would be one of the things that would stand out to me and uh, finally draw my eye, uh, you know, where Superman was just the boring guy who couldn't make mistakes. You know, he was the guy who would be threatened by something very, very strange. <laughs> And uh, would always overcome without really breaking much of a sweat. Really took a lot of the uh, the impact out of uh, out of reading Superman. Uh, and considering my first real, you know, toe dip into Superman's world was the death. I, I think I kind of have a different perspective, and I think that's not a that's not a rare perspective considering how many people probably first met Superman as a comic book character, not as a icon. During the Death of Superman storyline. Now, th- this is a 
this is a Superman you could root for because there was doubt, you know. Uh, this is a Superman that had to use oxygen to breathe in space, you know. This is uh, really cool stuff here. And uh, he would make mistakes. He would be a man. He wasn't, he wasn't, you know, the stern father with the, with the big chin from the 50s, you know. He wasn't the angry dad. He was a guy, you know, just trying to get through who just happened to have superpowers. And uh, that's really what brought me in. Now, we mentioned again earlier, Byrne has these feelings on Superman's feelings of alienation. Because Clark Kent was raised by humans. He was raised as a human. Uh, he's got powers, but all he knows is being human. The alienation bit is is, is kind of pressed in our faces these days. I, I don't know if writers think that it's clever or if it's like a thread that just needs to be tugged, but like Byrne says, he Superman doesn't know from alienation. He didn't live on Krypton. He didn't. Th- this Superman didn't grow up on Krypton. He wasn't born there. He was born on Earth, in the uh, in the Matrix. I just think that that's. Uh, I I I like that we're not really going to play up the outsider, in that kind of way. Like I mentioned earlier, there is an outsider element here, but it's more a guy coming from a small town trying to fit in at a big city, instead of a guy from Krypton trying to fit in on Earth, because this Superman didn't grow up on Krypton, so there's really no reason to explore alienation in that regard. Now, you know, he can perform amazing acts of strength here, uh, but he's still comfortable to hanging out, <laughs> you know? He'll, uh, he'll hang out with friends, he'll hang out with strangers. This is, this is a guy who... Uh, who is as human as as the next guy. And uh, the funny thing that Byrne does mention here that doesn't exactly come to pass or doesn't come to pass at all is that he wasn't planning on revealing uh, Clark's heritage until four years into the run. That's crazy. You know, I, that just imagine that reveal. I mean, let's jump 40, let's jump 40 issues into, uh, into Superman volume two. We're just 10 issues before, the engagement, you know, I mean, that's, it just, it's a totally different place. And, uh, part of me would really like to see how that played out. Um, and, uh, what the discovery was and if maybe, uh, maybe Ma's scrapbook played into that or something, I don't know, but, uh, I think that's very interesting. Um, and, uh, such, and such an indictment, uh, or not an indictment really, but an illustration of, a of, a burn, Really having a long-term plan. Uh, I, I think he said something about wanting to stay on for at least a hundred issues. Which, I mean, a hundred issues of Superman Volume Two. A lot of things changed. A lot of things changed. So it's it's hard to consider John Byrne still writing Superman like in 1994. You know, that that would have been a totally different world. Um, now back to our Usenetter who is still quoting uh, John Byrne here from that CBG interview. He says, My first six issues are a compressed history of the character. To fix him up, bring him up to date, we proceed from there. The first six issues will hit the stands on a bi-weekly basis, and the first issue will be 30 pages, no ads. There will be no Superboy, no Supergirl, no cats, bats, rats, dogs, oddvox, elephants, monkeys, orangutans, no Phantom Zone. <laughs> now, uh... 
Our, our Usenetter says, I could never figure out why the Phantom Zone was considered a good place to put criminals. Uh, you put uh, you commit a crime, they stick you in this place where you don't have to work, you don't have to age, you can't die, you can't get sick, but uh, and you can see and hear into any place in the universe, which I, I still think uh, the the Phantom Zone is not a good place to be. Uh, I would uh, I would not want to be in the Phantom Zone. Uh, Burn continues. There will be no Phantom Zones, no survival zones, no candor, no crypto. The key phrase for Superman is. Quote, sole survivor of the Doom planet Krypton. Nobody else walked away from that. And to our Usenetter says, Good riddance. The DC Universe has become so overcrowded with Krypton survivors that I was beginning to think the, that only three or four people actually died when Krypton blew up. I sure, I hope somebody blows up Daxam. Uh, that, I guess that's mon home planet. Uh, because there were just too many super people around. Uh, continuing with the CBGPs. Byrne received the assignment from DC executive editor Dick Giordano, who learned that Byrne had recently become a freelancer. Quote, they took everything that I everything that I said I wanted to do with the character, all the fixes and changes, even the supreme egotism on my part of having the first issue being a number one. All this all other Superman titles will be done in concert with the main series. Byrne has made it clear that he will continue to chronicle the Fantastic Four and the Incredible Hulk, adding, quote, there are a half, do- half a dozen DC titles that I'd like to play with, but unless something happens to affect the work I'm doing at Marvel, I won't have the time. Three books a month as, is as much as I can handle. Well, we might talk about that in a bit. Uh, <laughs> now, our uh, Usenetter concludes his piece with, I'm looking forward to this. It's about time that something was done to revitalize Superman, and I agree with most of the things that Byrne wants to do. The article doesn't say if Byrne intends to make his belief that Superman's powers are psionically based explicit in the book. I hope not. I do hope that he gets rid of some of the soups being more ridiculous powers, including super ventriloquism and super breath. Alrighty, now, Byrne's first six issues, of course, is uh, the 1986 miniseries Man of Steel. In it, of course, Superman gets himself a brand new origin story. And uh, one of the most interesting changes made, for me, is the birthing matrix. Uh, I'd actually not uh, known... I I didn't know anything about a birthing matrix. And it wasn't until I was reading uh, the post-Mike Carlin edited ones. I guess this is the Berganza books of uh, 2000-2001, where uh, Jeff Loeb came in and uh, uh, Joe Casey, Joe Kelly, uh, Steve Siegel, uh, Mark Schultz... Uh, they were all brought in to kind of uh, head the Superman line. And in it, they started bringing back what a lot of folks on Usenet called uh, Silver Age stuff. And uh, they were taking elements out of the burn run and, and putting back classic uh, elements, such as removing the birthing matrix, which at that time I didn't know what it was because I wasn't following and I never went back to uh, learn uh, much to, you know... <laughs> My own, uh, my own lack of uh, motivation for whatever reason that was. But I didn't know what the birthing matrix was. I didn't understand that the post-crisis Superman was you know, technically born on Earth. I didn't understand any of that. So uh, the most interesting thing about this to me is that, because, I mean, he was born on Earth. Um, we have, uh, We have, like, the whole thing with Superman being an illegal alien, you know, there were those jokes uh, back in the day where 
here, he was actually born here. <laughs> he lives where he was born. And uh, uh, Byrne mentions here he wanted to make Clark the last son of Krypton. He wants to make him special. And just like in the Usenet post here, it feels like the only folks that died were Jor-El and Lyra. <laughs> You know, uh, with how many showed up and how many continued to show up. Now, the Super Pets, they're one of the odder Silver Age concepts that, outside of crypto, I, I wasn't really all that, you know, big on. I, I get that they're kind of a funny haha, you know. Uh, but, eh, you know, I, I don't really have any problem with that. Uh, the exclusion of uh, Superboy caused a bit of contention among fandom because, uh, in the pre-crisis, Superboy was, Clark is a boy, you know. The tagline was, the adventures of Superman when he was a boy. And uh, John Byrne famously took issue with these stories because, in his mind, the outcome was never in question. And on- honestly, he's, he's right, because anybody reading these books knows that Superboy will not die because <laughs> he has to grow up to become Superman. Uh, Byrne actually coined the term Superboy story to refer to any kind of flashbacky story or a story taken back in a different time where uh, you already know that that there isn't going to be any kind of cataclysmic change, you know, because the person has to grow up to become what they're going to be. But this would affect the Legion of Superheroes, their origin, because they initially assembled in tribute to Superboy. So, in theory, no Superboy equals no Legion. But uh, we we won't go too deep into pocket universes or anything like that here. That might be another visit. Now, Supergirl, as she was known in the Silver Age and pre-crisis, didn't reappear in the DC Universe until Superman Batman number 8. That was cover dated May 2004. Uh, during the end of John Byrne's run, he would actually introduce a Supergirl, but not a Kryptonian. Now, this was a shape-shifting protoplasmic creature, and... Uh, also, toward the end of the burn run, the Phantom Zone is introduced, uh, which, uh, you know, takes a <laughs> little bit of the oomph out of his statement there. Um, and actually, one of the more memorable Superman stories of this era concerns a group of Phantom Zone criminals, which we might discuss another time, because that's a uh, that had a very uh, controversial uh, ending and very uh, statement-making ending. Now, as for Burn sticking around on his Marvel titles, of course... That was short-lived. <laughs> if we jump over to the Burn Robotics FAQ, this is a burnrobotics.com. It's the Burn site, the Burn message board. He says uh, that he and uh, Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, they already had a rocky relationship. And we've discussed that a lot on the Cosmic Treadmill and Weird Comics History. Uh, now, his taking on a non-Marvel book, as John says himself, was just one more nail in the coffin. Several stories that had already been approved were suddenly redrawn and rewritten following the announcement that Byrne would be directing the Superman ship. Uh, you have uh, him you know, putting in, putting in scripts that were all good to go until they find out that he's, uh, he's dipping his ink. He's dipping his pen in another company's ink, I guess. Um, now, I enjoyed his Fantastic Four. Um, I, I found it a little uneven, but there was a lot that I really enjoyed about that. Uh, the Incredible Hulk that he did was okay. Um, I remember him saying he was going to go back to basics, and, and one of the things he did was marry Bruce and Betty, which didn't seem very back to basics to me. Uh, of course, I, I might be unfairly comparing it to what comes after it, which is that wonderful Peter David run. Uh, it's uh, The burn run uh, pales, to me at least, in comparison to that. 
So Marvel's loss was DC's gain, because it wouldn't be long before John was working on all three of the main Superman titles, that being Superman Volume 2, Adventures of Superman, which was Superman Volume 1, and Action Comics, which was the team-up book at the time. And uh, he would take that right up to when it became Action Comics Weekly. And uh, that that concludes our visit with Usenet. <laughs> and uh, there is plenty more that I could say about hot takes uh, around the, uh, the burn on Superman bit. And we might revisit those another time. Uh, there is, of course, another Man of Steel. Another Man of Steel number one that was published not too long ago. And uh, we will be discussing that on a future episode. I actually already have a guest lined up to discuss that. Because it's... Uh, I think it's his first time with a uh, with a true, you know, origin or a table-setting story with Superman, and I, I'm really anxious to get his take on all of that. Um, but uh, this was a pretty big deal. You know, you have basically Mr. Marvel coming over to revitalize the, the character you think of uh, when, when you think of the word superhero, you know, Um and it's it's funny the parallels with uh, the recent Bendis jump because for so many years Bendis was Mr. Marvel and uh, here he is over on on the Superman books he's now directing the Superman ship and uh, blooming the two titles into more titles and everything's uh, kind of growing um, that might be a fun hot take to do down the line too because they were back in I think that was what November 2017. When the Bendis announcement happened, a lot of people were uh, trepidatious. Uh, <laughs> um, a lot of people were saying, worst thing ever, best thing ever. You know, we, we do work in uh, hyperbole on the uh, comics internet. We don't really have much middle ground. Uh, personally, I, I'm a big, big fan of Bendis, but I, I will say that Bendis was one of the... Bendis fatigue was one of the reasons I, uh, I walked away from Marvel. Um, Besides, you know, the outright contempt Marvel Editorial has for its tenured readership, uh, things like fatigue setting in uh, were part of the reason why I dipped my toe, foot, and ankle into DC uh, about ten years ago. It was just a little too much of the same voice. And that's not a bad thing, you know. Um, I, I Jeff Johns is one of my favorites, too, but into his third or fourth year on Green Lantern, that voice just becomes the voice, and it just gets... It stagnates. No matter how good the stories are, no matter how great the dialogue might be, it's still the same voice, and you, you start to lose... You don't know what month of the year it is after a little while. And uh, that was kind of where I was on Bendis. And uh, I was a little nervous about him coming in. Um, and, uh, in fact, when I found out he was coming in, one of the first things I said was, I hope he doesn't get Superman. <laughs> I thought... Give him, give him Batman. Give him anything else. Just keep him away from Superman. And, uh, well, no, he's he's on Superman. And uh, so far, I've only ever read his Man of Steel, and I enjoyed it outside of a couple of a uh, couple of quirky lines from uh, Barry Allen that I wasn't too fond of. But uh, I do look forward to eventually sitting down with the entire run and uh, working my way through that. But that'll do it for this week. And uh, hope you enjoyed uh, this trip back into the many, many origins of Superman and <laughs> my thoughts and uh, Usenet of 1985's thoughts. Uh, if you'd like to get a hold of me or Reggie, get a hold of us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. 
You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, at Cosmic T-Mill, Cosmic T-Mill History, Reggie Reggie, Ace Comics, all those places. You know where to find us. Um, if you want to check out the site that this show is named after, go to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Also, the show site, chrisandreggie.com, where all of our show notes and episodes will be. And uh, if you're on my site and decide you want to hear me talk about a certain issue or a certain run, definitely reach out, let me know. If you're over there and you think think of a book that you might want to discuss with me, let me know. We'll see what we can work out uh, and get you on here talking. Um, that's all for now. Had a great time visiting. Hope you all did too. So long for now. See ya.